Let us pray. Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. In the years 1957 through 1958, if you had written to the advice column in Ebony Magazine, you would have received a response from the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. He's known, obviously, for famous oratory in the Washington Mall. He's famous for his work for voting rights, access for all people, uh, his work on behalf of the civil rights cause. But many people are unaware that he fielded questions in an advice column in Ebony. And um, he got deep questions, questions about race, questions about politics, questions about war, questions about theology. But he also got... I'm a Baptist deacon. Can I go to a cocktail party if it's for professional reasons? (laughs) To which Dr. King replied, I'm not making this up. This is 100% true. Yes, if it's for professional reasons. But you can only have Michelob Ultra. (laughs) Or a White Claw. No, he didn't... (laughs) That last part I made up. Uh, He got a question from a woman who said, My husband likes to bet on the horses. I tell him it's unethical, even though it may be legal. He tells me it's legal. I can do what I want. What do you say? He sided with her. I don't know how that went for them. I love reading advice columns. That wasn't funny. I just thought it was funny that somebody... I mean, it wasn't really funny, but it was kind of funny that somebody wrote about gambling to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I mean, I don't know. Uh, Anyways, I bring this up because I I was struck when I heard this news because I am an avid reader of advice columns. I think they are fascinating. This began when we had newspapers. You remember those? I'd read Ann Landers. Uh, Now I read them online, mostly. Uh, But they uh, are fascinating insights into what is going on in people's lives. Uh, These are the kinds of questions that people feel like they can't ask anybody else, though they'd like to ask a public person so that millions of people can see what they're asking. But what's amazing to me, again, because as a pastor, I always have people in my office telling me about what's going on in their lives. But I find in many cases, you only hear about 95% of the problem because of God. Like, I might hurl a lightning bolt at them if they tell me that last 5%, which is the part they're really ashamed of. So in advice columns, where there's no threat of divine judgment, apparently, people just put it all out there. And you get incredible insights, again, into what's actually going on in people's lives, what they're thinking about, what they're anxious about. And a theme that comes up in a lot of these across publications, across audiences, across demographics, is this question. I've been seeing someone. It's getting serious. When can I tell them who I really am? When can I tell them the thing in my life that I don't tell anyone? 
When can I tell them I've never seen a single one of the Rocky movies? <laughs> of course, it's usually more serious. You know, it's stuff like, I got married at 18. It was a disaster. It lasted six months. I've never told anyone. I'm so embarrassed. When can I tell them this thing? Or, I have a grief. My child died in my first marriage when they were five years old, and I, it's, what I, it's, it's always with me, but it's so painful that I don't tell people because they don't react well to that. They never know how to handle it. When do I tell this person? Or, I have an adult child who's institutionalized, and, it, you know, whether it could be in prison, that's an institution, it could be a psychiatric facility, when do I tell them this thing? When do I tell them about my sister who is an addict and the family has cut her off entirely? And so if you, when you come and meet my parents, in the family photos, you'll notice a person that we don't talk to anymore. You know, when can I tell them who that person is in the pictures? These are all different ways of saying, how do I navigate the worst thing in my life? So we read today in Acts chapter 4, and we learn that the hidden and sometimes parts of our lives that feel shameful are just the difficult places, the stuff that never makes it in your Christmas card. Where do those things fit into this life? And, you know, we're in church, so we're trying to fit God, life, all of this stuff together, on some level, you're here because you want some help. You're not getting, there's, you're not getting money. You're not getting extra credit. You're not, I mean, maybe a little social standing, but because um, it's still, it's Texas. We're in the Bible Belt. You get a little, you get a little, people are like, oh, you went to church. Um, but for the most part, you don't get anything practical, tangible from coming here. So you're here because you need some help. And, and, and hopefully we can say something that helps in the place where you really need it. And we all have that place where we really need it. And so Acts 4, I think, says something about those places. Um, and I want to talk about this passage. It's an ancient passage. It has weird names like Annas and Caiaphas. And what in the world could this say about my pain? So I want to walk through it a little bit. And then I want to talk about Reginald Dwight a.k.a. Elton John, and then I want to say something about Renaissance sculpture with a P.S. on sheep. That's where we're headed. What kind of church is this? <laughs> Some newcomer was like, is this the Episcopal Church? Um, so Acts 4 takes place in um, the time after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. So he has left the building, he has sent the Holy Spirit, Pentecost has happened, and you have this ragtag group of Christians, that term is just about to be invented to describe these people that follow Jesus, and they are hanging out in Jerusalem, and despite the public trial and execution of their leader, who clearly both the Romans and the temple authorities hate, they have not stayed in hiding. These disciples of Jesus have come back out, very open, very upfront, very public, going to the temple every day, the most public setting there could be with as many people as possible to tell them about Jesus. And the powers that be are really 
perplexed about how do we deal with this. We thought we had uh, fumigated and gotten rid of the problem, but they just keep coming back, these Christians, and they're doing annoying things like healing people in public in the name of Jesus, which they had been expressly forbidden to do. And so they got arrested for that, and the passage today begins with the Judge Judy moment. They are brought out. They have to face this court, this religious court for healing, unauthorized healing in an unapproved name. And what are they going to do? So St. Peter talks. He speaks up for the group. And uh, when asked, in what name did you do this unauthorized healing? He says, well, in the name of Jesus. The guy, you remember the guy? You crucified him. But he came back. Come at me, bro, is essentially the tone of Peter's speech. Except he doesn't say, come at me, bro. He quotes the Psalms. Psalm 118, verse 22, and he says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The stone the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. So, if you were a stonemason in the first century, you would have built a lot of buildings out of stone. These days, it's steel or lumber, a lot of drywall involved. This building, actually, is a stone building, and so if you had been here... Uh, a year ago, you would have seen piles and piles of rocks in our parking lot. The huge stones that form the outside the foundation of this building, as well as the stones that make up the walls, the stones like these. And men were working in the hot sun throughout the summer, putting these stones together. In the first century, what they would have done in addition to that would have been to examine the stones and make sure each one worked that there weren't weak spots, that there weren't flaws, that there weren't cracks. And the most important one was the cornerstone. You didn't want any flaws or problems with that stone because that was the stone you had to place it perfectly. And if you did it right, and if it was a good stone, the building would be level, the angles would be right angles, all the lines would be in plumb. But if not, you had a lot of problems with your building. And so you would expect, inspect the stones and you'd reject the bad ones and pick the best one for the cornerstone. And so in Psalm 118, what Peter quotes, talking about Jesus, he says, the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. It's now become the thing that holds everything together. And this, of course, is about Jesus. This describes what happened to him. He was poor, uneducated. He came from a questionable background. He let sinners off the hook. He played seemingly fast and loose with the rules of good society people. He was arrested humiliated, crucified, a shameful public execution. But it turns out in all that terrible stuff, God was at work. And so this idea of the stone that the builders rejected becoming the cornerstone, it's a description of Jesus, but it also starts this way of thinking and this approach to life that says something to the advice column writers of the world, the people who don't know what to do about this part of their life that they can't fit into anything and can't ever talk about, the rejected stones, that you would never want to build your life on this stone, so you just hide it. But Jesus opens this way where we can think that the stone that is rejected actually becomes the cornerstone. The work of God happens everywhere in your life. 
But it happens also in the place of trauma, in the place of grief, in the place of pain. That's where the work of God is. That's what this means. To say, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It's another way of saying, the thing that finally gets you into therapy is the best thing that ever happened to you. Now, assuming you have a good therapist. The thing that gets... See, most people go through life with all these rejected stones that they don't talk about. And there's lots of ways to kind of deal with it. They're called coping mechanisms. Uh, TV is a great coping mechanism. Numb you right out. Alcohol, old standby. Lots of people, as Homer Simpson says, the solution and the cause of all life's problems. Uh, there is also just plain old denial. Just, you know, there is no problem. I'm fine. Everything's fine. Highly effective. And compartmentalization. Just put it in a psychological lockbox, put it then in a Swiss uh, bank uh, um, safety deposit uh, that you need a special key and retinal scanner to get into, emotionally speaking. Just never talk about it. We, and you'd be amazed about the people who have something... People say, I was married to him for 30 years and I never learned about his childhood. Now that says something. We just lock some stuff away. So, Peter, when he says the, corners, the, build, the stone that builders rejected has become the cornerstone, is saying that that stuff that has been locked away and pushed aside, that that is actually a place where God can work. And Peter knew it himself. He had denied Christ publicly three times. While Christ needed him, while he was in his most desperate moment, Peter had a chance three times to have Jesus' back, and he said, nope, never heard of the guy. Don't know him. But it was that sin that allowed him to know that Jesus really meant it when he said he can forgive sins. And not just once or twice, but over and over and over again. It was that failure that led him to really realize that the grace of God is real. Uh, the beggar who Peter had healed just a few chapters before this, it was his ailment that made him open to the healing power of Christ. You see this all the time, that the thing which is the, the rejected stone is actually the place where the healing begins and lives are transformed. I'm waiting for this in Mayor of Easttown. It's this new detective drama on HBO, in which there is a woman who, as the story opens, she's a detective, played by Kate Winslet. This ain't Titanic, let me tell you. She's a embittered, hardened, middle-aged detective in a Rust Belt, Pennsylvania town, and she's angry at everybody. She's frustrated all the time. Her marriage is failing. Her life is sort of a mess. Um, and you're like, gosh, I wonder why this person is so angry all the time, and what's the, what's the deal here? And, of course, you find out that she is someone who has gone through a grief that is still unprocessed. Jeff Winger on Community, one of the shallowest but funniest shows of all time. Jeff Winger presents as this cool dude, former lawyer, got his life together, always dresses right, drives a Lexus, but turns out was somebody who, for whom middle school was a nightmare and his father was never present. Now, it uses humor to get at that, but that's a real thing. And if you had an absent parent, physically or emotionally or mentally, 
and you went through most of your childhood feeling isolated and alone, that abs- you are reacting to that on a daily basis. You're dealing with that right now. And so this is what I'm saying. These places, the thing that finally gets you into therapy is the best thing that ever happened to you. And that's what it means to say that the cornerstone, the build, stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is not to say every cloud has a silver lining. This is not to say God won't give you anything you can't handle. <laughs> this is not, which those sorts of things... I'm sure God has a plan. Those are things that people have said to you because they are uncomfortable with your pain and they would like the conversation to continue on some other topic. I would like to minimize what you're going through. Can we talk about brunch? I'm not saying that. That is not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that for the Christian, for the human being, you have these rejected stones. Some of them are enormous. Or maybe they're just piles and piles of small ones. And that this is affecting you. And what this means, that the stone that was rejected can become the cornerstone, that Jesus can die and be resurrected, what this means is that this is a place where God can work. This is not a no-fly zone for divine activity. This is actually a place where God can work. And it doesn't mean the pain necessarily goes away. This is not a magic wand. But it does mean that there's no place in your life where God can't work. And often the work is to bring some sort of love and acceptance and integration of that pain into your life. To decompartmentalize. You know, this is the opposite of Lunchables. You know what a Lunchable is? A Lunchable is a little plastic tray of highly processed foods... It's the salvation of working parents because you just buy, buy Lunchables in bulk and you've now packed lunch for a month for your kid. They can take it to school and it's like, this compartment has the crackers, this has the questionable meat, and this is the cheese. And they can make these little snacks. That's a Lunchable. Compartments. And our life has compartments. Taking the rejected stone and it becoming the cornerstone is integration. And this is what this means you can do. You can take the pain and the joy. You can take your whole life and bring that into God's work. And God's work happens in all those places. That's what this means. So what, what might this look like? Well, Reginald Dwight, Sir Elton John. Uh, if any of you went to see Rocket Man, you know what I'm about to talk about. Rocket Man is the movie about him, the musical that came out, and some of you went thinking, this will be an upbeat musical, Benny and the Jets, you know? (laughs) This is going to be fun. Costumes, it'll be great. Platform shoes and rhinestones, what's not to love? But the entire movie is actually an AA meeting. It begins with him uh, entering a recovery room, full costume, feathers and orange jumpsuit and all that. And metaphorically, as he goes through this meeting, he begins to take off the pieces of his costume, and he also begins to unpack his life going back to his childhood, growing up in a home that was massively dysfunctional, absent, cold, cruel father, overbearing mother, and uh, um, just a massive sense of his own insecurity. And all of that 
This is the rejected stone, right? And, but this is the thing that finally gets him into the recovery room. And if you've heard the NPR interview or if you've heard Elton talk about this anywhere, he'll say, this is what saved my life. Renaissance sculpture. Michelangelo. That Florentine sculptor. His name is Michelangelo Buonarroti. People are like, ah, he has a last name. <laughs> and it's not Angelo. <laughs> of course, famous for the Sistine Chapel, famous for the Pietà, but I would argue that his most famous and influential piece is the David, that colossal statue that sat outside of basically City Hall in Florence for centuries, that moved inside for protection, but... That sculpture was carved from, again, this enormous block of marble, but Michelangelo was not the first person to carve it. Another sculptor had tried 50 years before, and with his hammer and chisel, while he was trying to carve something, left a huge gouge in the front of the block. And because of that, no one had tried since. Just sat, sort of abandoned and overlooked. Michelangelo gifted carver and a driven artist wanted to try. And it was that very gouge that forced him to have to carve it in a certain way that is, results in the lyric beauty of that physical form, the fact that one leg is forward and one leg is back and how the body is turned and the angle of the hips and all of that that creates this incredible tension in the sculpture, David about to face Goliath, all of that stuff that's captured in that form is all because of where the gouge was. He couldn't ungouge it. He had to work around it, creating something of unmatched power and beauty, and also something which sixth graders would giggle at for centuries. <laughs> we go through our lives and there's lots of stones that we would reject. Lots of gouges, lots of weak spots, lots of flaws, lots of cracks, lots of ways we feel like we have been let down or let others down. We weren't present emotionally for that friend, and then when a bad thing happened, we didn't know how to reach out, and now it has been 10 years since I've spoken to this person. Your child goes through a difficult experience and you're not there emotionally in the way you feel like you should be because of something you were going through at that time with your parent. You were the adult caretaker of an adult and you weren't there for them in high school, whatever the case may be. All these things where you think that God can't work because you let somebody down as a sibling, as a spouse, as a human. Or you were the one let down. You got plenty of rejected stones from that area too. And Jesus is the ultimate rejected stone. And his death was the cause of his resurrection. And Christianity has something very powerful to say about that. There's a lot of people. Uh, Marx was wrong. Religion is not the opiate of the people. An opiate of the people is something that says, everything's fine, deny, deny, compartmentalize, lunchable your life. That's what an opiate does. It numbs you. Christianity actually faces honestly what happened. 
uh, what happens in human life, which is death, suffering, and your 19th nervous breakdown. But in that, what we say very powerfully is that there can be some sort of redemption, that healing does happen. There may be wounds that turn into scars. The scars may remain as they do in Christ's body. But it doesn't mean that God is not active and present and cannot bring healing and redemption in those situations. My P.S. Today is Good Shepherd Sunday. It's called that because this Sunday is always the one in which we read Jesus saying, I am the good shepherd, I lay my life down for the sheep. And we read the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And then all the music is centered around those themes. And I just want to end with that, that Jesus is the good shepherd who lays his life down for the sheep. And the reason is because for some of you, this is pastor talk. This is nice stuff I have to say to deal with the problem of pain, which is, on some level, an unanswerable question. There are some of you who have been, um, to quote Helter Skelter, you go, back, you go down to the bottom to get back to the top. Some of you have been to the bottom, and you have found that God can take the rejected stones and turn them into cornerstones. You are on the other side of this catastrophic failure. And it has been the device of God's healing and resurrection and redemption in your life. There's some of you that are going through it now, and you're like, preach it, preach it. I need some help. I need some hope. Get me through. Because I'm in it now, and I think you're right, but I'm not sure. But I think you're right, and, and if you say so, I can hang on for one more day, Wilson Phillips. But some of you are still in the box canyon. You know what that is? It's when you can't get out. There's no exit. Some of you are in the wreckage right now, and you're just not really sure. And what I want to offer you today, and this is true for everybody, whether you're someone who has found this out, who is finding this out, or maybe you're in the part who will find it out later on. Jesus Christ says he is the good shepherd. He's not the hired hand that abandons the sheep the second the wolf comes. He's the one who goes after and rescues the sheep when they're lost, who drives the wolf away. He lays his life down. He lets the wolf go after him instead of snatching the sheep. And this is what he says. So for us, with our rejected stones, Jesus Christ, the good shepherd of the sheep, comes to offer that redemptive power, that help that can turn the rejected stone into the cornerstone. And I will pray for you that you find that true in your life and that you find a good therapist or that you get into the room of recovery or that you hear the words to you as you come for this meal. I'm the good shepherd who lays his life down. For the sheep. Let us pray. O oh, good shepherd, help. Amen.